0: Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. We're happy to have you here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is healthcare, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. This is the final part of the final story of the Karnaki Chronicles, at least as far as this year is concerned. I hope you've been enjoying it. Certainly, the first two stories were a little formulaic, and if I'm honest, I thought that's how they were all going to go, but I was pleasantly surprised to see they weren't. If you enjoy the Karnaki stories and want to read some more, there's a great weird fiction author named William Meekle who has written some Karnaki stories that are a blend of Hodgson and Lovecraft that are definitely worth checking out. Link in the show notes. Lastly, Colin Malatrat. Come on, you knew this was going to be mentioned. It's available in hardback, paperback, and ebook. so go and pick up a copy. If you do, please leave a rating and a review. I always love to hear thoughts on it, whether good or bad. Okay, on to the conclusion of The Thing Invisible by William Hope Hodgson. And then abruptly, once more, I thought I heard the sound of that huge soft tread on the aisle, and this time closer to me. There was an awful little silence during which I had the feeling that something enormous was bending over towards me from the aisle. And then, through the booming of the blood in my ears, there came a slight sound from the place where my camera stood, a disagreeable sort of slithering sound, and then a sharp tap. I had the lantern ready in my left hand, and now I snapped it on, desperately, and showed it straight above me, for I had a conviction that there was something there. But I saw nothing. Immediately I flashed the light at the camera and along the aisle, but again there was nothing visible. I wheeled round, shooting the beam of light in a great circle about the place. To and fro I shone it, jerking it here and there, but it showed me nothing. I had stood up the instant that I had seen that there was nothing in sight over me, and now I determined to visit the chancel and see whether the dagger had been touched. I stepped out of the pew into the aisle, and here I came to an abrupt pause— for an almost invincible sick repugnance was fighting me back from the upper part of the chapel. A constant queer prickling went up and down my spine, and a dull ache took me in the small of the back, as I fought with myself to conquer this sudden new feeling of terror and horror. I tell you that no one who has not been through these kinds of experiences has any idea of the sheer, actual physical pain attendant upon and resulting from the intense nerve strain that ghostly fright sets up in the human system. I stood there, feeling positively ill, but I got myself in hand, as it were, in about half a minute, and then I went walking, I expect, as jerky as a mechanical tin man, and switching the light from side to side, before and behind and over my head continually, and the hand that held my revolver sweated so much that the thing fairly slipped in my fist. Does not sound very heroic, does it? I passed through the short chancel and reached the step that led up to the small gate in the chancel rail. I threw the beam from my lantern upon the dagger. Yes, I thought it's all right. Abruptly, it seemed to me that there was something wanting, and I leaned forward over the chancel gate to peer, holding the light high. My suspicion was hideously correct. The dagger had gone. Only the cross-shaped sheath hung there above the altar. In a sudden, frightened flash of imagination, I pictured the thing adrift in the chapel, moving here and there as though of its own volition, for whatever force wielded it was certainly beyond visibility. I turned my head stiffly over to the left, glancing frightenedly behind me and flashing the light to help my eyes. In the same instant, I was struck a tremendous blow over the left breast and hurled backward from the chancel rail into the aisle, my armor clanging loudly in the horrible silence. I landed on my back and slithered along on the polished marble. My shoulders struck the corner of a pew front and brought me up half stunned. I scrambled to my feet, horribly sick and shaken, but the fear that was on me making little of that at the moment. I was minus both revolver and lantern and utterly bewildered as to just where I was standing. I bowed my head and made a scrambling run in the complete darkness and dashed into a pew. I jumped back, staggering, got my bearings a little, and raced down the center of the aisle, putting my mailed arms over my face. I plunged into my camera, hurling it among the pews. I crashed into the front and reeled back. Then I was at the exit. I fumbled madly in my dressing gown pocket for the key. I found it and scraped at the door, feverishly, for the keyhole. I found the keyhole, turned the key, burst the door open, and was into the passage. I slammed the door and leant hard against it, gasping. "'whilst I felt crazily again for the keyhole, "'this time to lock the door upon what was in the chapel. "'I succeeded and began to feel my way stupidly "'along the wall of the corridor. "'Presently I had come to the big hall, "'and so in a little to my room. "'In my room I sat for a while "'until I had steadied down something to the normal. "'After a time I commenced to strip off the armor. "'I saw then that both the chain-mail "'and the plate armor had been pierced over the breast,' "'and suddenly it came home to me that the thing had struck for my heart. "'Stripping rapidly, I found that the skin of the breast over the heart "'had just been cut sufficiently to allow a little blood to stain my shirt, nothing more. "'Only the whole breast was badly bruised and intensely painful. "'You can imagine what would have happened if I had not worn the armor. "'In any case, it is a marvel that I was not knocked senseless. "'I did not go to bed at all that night, "'but sat upon the edge thinking and waiting for the dawn.' for I had to remove my litter before Sir Alfred Jarnock should enter if I were to hide from him the fact that I had managed a duplicate key. So soon as the pale light of the morning had strengthened sufficiently to show me the various details of my room, I made my way quietly down to the chapel. Very silently and with tense nerves I opened the door. The chill light of the dawn made distinct the whole place. Everything seemed instinct with a ghostly, unearthly quiet. Can you get the feeling?' I waited several minutes at the door, allowing the morning to grow, and likewise my courage, I suppose. Presently, the rising sun threw an odd beam right in through the big east window, making colored sunshine all the length of the chapel. And then, with a tremendous effort, I forced myself to enter. I went up the aisle to where I had overthrown my camera in the darkness. The legs of the tripod were sticking up from the interior of a pew, and I expected to find the machine smashed to pieces— Yet beyond that, the ground glass was broken. There was no real damage done. I replaced the camera in the position from which I had taken the previous photography, but the slide containing the plate I had exposed by flashlight I removed and put into one of my side pockets, regretting that I had not taken a second flash picture at the instant when I heard those strange sounds up in the chancel. Having tidied my photographic apparatus, I went to the chancel to recover my lantern and revolver which had both, as you know, been knocked from my hands when I was stabbed. I found the lantern lying, hopelessly bent, with smashed lens just under the pulpit. My revolver I must have held until my shoulder struck the pew, for it was lying there in the aisle just about where I believe I cannoned into the pew corner. It was quite undamaged. Having secured these two articles, I walked up to the chancel rail to see whether the dagger had returned or been returned to its sheath above the altar. Before, however, I reached the chancel rail, I had a slight shock. For there, on the floor of the chancel, about a yard away from where I had been struck, lay the dagger, quiet and demure upon the polished marble pavement. I wondered whether you will, any of you, understand the nervousness that took me at the sight of the thing. With a sudden unreasoned action, I jumped forward and put my foot on it to hold it there. Can you understand? Do you? And, you know, I could not stoop down and pick it up with my hands for quite a minute, I should think. Afterward, when I had done so, however, and handled it a little, this feeling passed away and my reason, and also I expect the daylight, made me feel that I had been a little bit of an ass. Quite natural, though, I assure you. Yet, it was a new kind of fear to me. "'I am taking no notice of the cheap joke about the ass. "'I am talking about the curiousness of learning, in that moment, "'a new shade or quality of fear that had hitherto been outside of my knowledge or imagination. "'Does it interest you?' "'I examined the dagger, minutely turning it over and over in my hands, "'and never, as I suddenly discovered, holding it loosely. "'It was as if I were subconsciously surprised that it lay quiet in my hands.' Yet even this feeling passed, largely, after a short while. The curious weapon showed no signs of the blow, except that the dull color of the blade was slightly brighter on the rounded point that had cut through the armor. Presently, when I had made an end of staring at the dagger, I went up the chancel step and in through the little gate. Then, kneeling upon the altar, I replaced the dagger in its sheath and came outside of the rail again, closing the gate after me, and feeling awarely uncomfortable because the old horrible weapon was back again in its accustomed place. I suppose, without analyzing my feelings very deeply, I had an unreasoned and only half-conscious belief that there was a greater probability of danger when the dagger hung in its five-century resting place than when it was out of it. Yet somehow I don't think this is a very good explanation when I remember the demure look the thing seemed to have when I saw it lying on the floor of the chancel. Only I know this, that when I had replaced the dagger, I had quite a touch of nerves and I stopped only to pick up my lantern from where I had placed it whilst I examined the weapon, after which I went down the quiet aisle at a pretty quick walk and so got out of the place. That the nerve tension had been considerable, I realized when I had locked the door behind me. I felt no inclination now to think of old Sir Alfred as a hypochondriac because he had taken such hyper-seeming precautions regarding the chapel. I had a sudden wonder as to whether he might not have some knowledge of a long prior tragedy in which the dagger had been concerned. I returned to my room, washed, shaved, and dressed, after which I read a while. Then I went downstairs and got the acting butler to give me some sandwiches and a cup of coffee. Half an hour later, I was heading for Burton Tree, as hard as I could walk, for a sudden idea had come to me, which I was anxious to test. I reached the town a little before 8.30 and found the local photographer with his shutters still up. I did not wait, but knocked until he appeared with his coat off, evidently in the act of dealing with his breakfast. In a few words I made clear that I wanted the use of his dark room immediately, and this he at once placed at my disposal. I had brought with me the slide which contained the plate that I had used with the flashlight, and as soon as I was ready I set to work to develop. Yet it was not the plate which I had exposed that I first put into the solution, but the second plate, which had been ready in the camera during all the time of my waiting in the darkness. You see, the lens had been uncapped all that while, so that the whole chancel had been, as it were, under observation. You all know something of my experiments in lightless photography, that is, appreciating light. It was X-ray work that started me in that direction. Yet you must understand, though I was attempting to develop this unexposed plate, I had no definite idea of results, nothing more than a vague hope that it might show me something yet because of the possibilities it was with the most intense and absorbing interest that I watched the plate under the action of the developer. Presently I saw a faint smudge of black appear in the upper part, and after that others, indistinct and wavering of outline. I held the negative up to the light. The marks were rather small and were almost entirely confined to one end of the plate, but as I have said, lacked definiteness. Yet such as they were, They were sufficient to make me very excited, and I shoved the thing quickly back into the solution. For some minutes further I watched it, lifting it out once or twice to make a more exact scrutiny, but could not imagine what the markings might represent, until suddenly it occurred to me that in one of two places they certainly had shapes suggestive of a cross-hilted dagger. Yet the shapes were sufficiently indefinite to make me careful not to let myself be over-impressed by the uncomfortable resemblance— though I must confess the very thought was sufficient to set some odd thrills adrift in me. I carried development a little further, then put the negative into the hypo and commenced work upon the other plate. This came up nicely, and very soon I had a really decent negative that appeared similar in every respect, except for the difference of lighting, to the negative I had taken during the previous day. I fixed the plate, then, having washed both it and the unexposed one for a few minutes under the tap, I put them into methylated spirits for fifteen minutes, after which I carried them into the photographer's kitchen and dried them in the oven. Whilst the two plates were drying, the photographer and I made an enlargement from the negative I had taken by daylight. Then we did the same with the two that I had just developed, washing them as quickly as possible, for I was not troubling about the permanency of the prints and drying them with spirits. When this was done, I took them to the window and made a thorough examination, commencing with the one that appeared to show shadowy daggers in several places. Yet though it was now enlarged, I was still unable to feel convinced that the marks truly represented anything abnormal, and because of this, I put it on one side, determined not to let my imagination play too large a part in constructing weapons out of the indefinite outlines. I took up the two other enlargements, both of the chancel, as you will remember, and commenced to compare them. For some minutes I examined them without being able to distinguish any difference in the scene they portrayed, and then abruptly I saw something in which they varied. In the second enlargement, the one made from the flashlight negative, the dagger was not in its sheath, yet I had felt sure it was there but a few minutes before I took the photograph. After this discovery I began to compare the two enlargements in a very different manner from my previous scrutiny I borrowed a pair of calipers from the photographer, and with these I carried out a most methodical and exact comparison of the details shown in the two photographs. Suddenly I came upon something that set me all tingling with excitement. I threw the calipers down, paid the photographer, and walked out through the shop into the street. The three enlargements I took with me, making them into a roll as I went. At the corner of the street I had the luck to get a cab and was soon back at the castle. I hurried up to my room and put the photographs away. Then I went down to see whether I could find Sir Alfred Jarnock, but Mister George Jarnock, who met me, told me that his father was too unwell to rise and would prefer that no one entered the chapel unless he were about. young Jarnock made a half apologetic excuse for his father, remarking that Sir Alfred Jarnock was perhaps inclined to be a little over careful, but that considering what had happened, we must agree that the need for his carefulness had been justified. He added also that even before the horrible attack on the butler, his father had been just as particular, always keeping the key and never allowing the door to be unlocked, except when the place was in use for divine service, and for an hour each forenoon when the cleaners were in. To all this I nodded understandingly, but when presently the young man left me, I took my duplicate key and made for the door of the chapel. I went in and locked it behind me, after which I carried out some intensely interesting and rather weird experiments. These proved successful to such an extent that I came out of the place in a perfect fever of excitement. I inquired for Mr. George Jarnock and was told that he was in the morning room. Come along, I said when I had found him. Please give me a lift. I have something exceedingly strange to show you. He was palpably very much puzzled, but came quickly. As we strode along, he asked me a score of questions, to all of which I just shook my head and, asking him to wait a little. I led the way to the armory. Here I suggested that he should take one side of a dummy, dressed in half-plate armor, whilst I took the other. He nodded, though obviously vastly bewildered, and together we carried the thing to the chapel door. When he saw me take out my key and open the way for us, he appeared even more astonished, but held himself in, evidently waiting for me to explain. We entered the chapel, and I locked the door behind us, after which we carted the armored dummy up the aisle to the gate of the chancel rail, where we put it down upon its round wooden stand. "'Stand back!' I shouted suddenly, as young Jarnik made a movement to open the gate. "'My God, man, you mustn't do that!' "'Do what?' he asked, half startled and half irritated by my words and manner. "'One minute,' I said. "'Just stand to the side a moment and watch.' He stepped to the left whilst I took the dummy in my arms and turned it to face the altar so that it stood close to the gate. Then, standing well away on the right side, I pressed the back of the thing so that it leant forward a little upon the gate which flew open.' In the same instant, the dummy was struck a tremendous blow that hurled it onto the aisle, the armor rattling and clanging upon the polished marble floor. "'Good God!' shouted young Jarnik, and ran back from the chancel rail, his face very white. "'Come and look at the thing,' I said, and led the way to where the dummy lay, its armored upper limbs all splayed adrift in queer contortions. I stooped over it and pointed. There, driven right through the thick steel breastplate, was the wayful dagger.' "'Good God!' said young Jarnik again. "'Good God, it's the dagger! "'The thing's been stabbed, same as Bellet!' "'Yes,' I replied, and saw him glance swiftly toward the entrance of the chapel. "'But I will do him the justice to say that he never budged an inch. "'Come, and see how it was done,' I said, and led the way back to the chancel rail. "'From the wall to the left of the altar I took down a long, curiously ornamented iron instrument, "'not unlike a short spear.' The sharp end of this I inserted in a hole in the left-hand gatepost of the chancel gateway. I lifted hard, and a section of the post from the floor upward bent inward toward the altar as though hinged at the bottom. Down it went, leaving the remaining part of the post standing. As I bent the movable portion lower, there came a quick click, and a section of the floor slid to one side, showing a long, shallow cavity sufficient to enclose the post. I put my weight to the lever and hove the post down into the niche. Immediately there was a sharp clang as some catch snicked in and held it against the powerful operating spring. I went over now to the dummy and after a few minutes' work managed to wrench the dagger loose out of the armor. I brought the old weapon and placed its hilt in a hole near the top of the post where it fitted loosely the point upward. After that I went again to the lever and gave another strong heave and the post descended about a foot to the bottom of the cavity catching there with another clang. I withdrew the lever, and the narrow strip of floor slid back, covering post and dagger, looking no different from the surrounding surface. Then I shut the chancel gate, and we both stood well to one side. I took the spear-like lever and gave the gate a little push so that it opened. Instantly there was a loud thud, and something sang through the air, striking the bottom wall of the chapel. It was the dagger. I showed Jarnik, then, that the other half of the post had sprung back into place, "'making the whole post as thick as the one "'upon the right-hand side of the gate. "'There,' I said, turning to the young man "'and tapping the divided post. "'There's the invisible thing that used the dagger. "'But who the deuce is the person who set the trap?' "'I looked at him keenly as I spoke. "'My father is the only one who has a key,' he said, "'so it's practically impossible for anyone to get in and meddle.' "'I looked at him again, "'but it was obvious that he had not yet reached out to any conclusion. "'See here, Mr. Johnnick.' I said, perhaps rather curter than I should have done considering what I had to say. Are you quite sure that Sir Alfred is quite balanced? Mentally. He looked at me half-frightenedly and flushing a little. I realized then how badly I put it. I, I I don't know, he replied after a slight pause and was then silent except for one or two incoherent half-remarks. Tell the truth, I said. Haven't you suspected something now and again? You needn't be afraid to tell me. "'Well,' he answered slowly, "'I'll admit I've felt father a little—a little strange, perhaps, at times. But I've always tried to think I was mistaken. I've always hoped no one else would see it. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm very fond of the old governor.' I nodded. "'Quite right, too,' I said. "'There's not the least need to make any kind of scandal about this. We must do something, though, but in a quiet way. No fuss, you know. I should go and have a chat with your father and tell him we found out about this thing.' I touched the divided post. Young Jarnock seemed very grateful for my advice, and after shaking my hand pretty hard, took my key and let himself out of the chapel. He came back in about an hour looking rather upset. He told me that my conclusions were perfectly correct. It was Sir Alfred Jarnock who had set the trap, both on the night that the butler was nearly killed and on the past night. Indeed, it seemed that the old gentleman had set it every night for many years. He had learnt of its existence from an old manuscript book in the castle library. It had been planned and used in an earlier age as a protection for the gold vessels of the ritual, which were, it seemed, kept in a hidden recess at the back of the altar. This recess Sir Alfred Jarnock had utilized secretly to store his wife's jewelry. She had died some twelve years back, and the young man told me that his father had never seemed quite himself since. I mentioned to young Jarnik how puzzled I was that the trap had been set before the service on the night that the butler was struck, for if I understood him aright, his father had been in the habit of setting the trap late every night and unsetting it each morning before anyone entered the chapel. He replied that his father, in a fit of temporary forgetfulness, natural enough in his neurotic condition, must have said it too early and hence what had so nearly proved a tragedy. That is about all there is to tell. The old man is not, so far as I could learn, really insane in the popularly accepted sense of the word. He is extremely neurotic and has developed into a hypochondriac. The whole condition, probably brought about by the shock and sorrow resultant on the death of his wife, leading to years of sad broodings and to overmuch of his own company and thoughts. Indeed, young Jarnik told me that his father would sometimes pray for hours together alone in the chapel." Carnacki made an end of speaking and leant forward for a spill. "'But you've never told us just how you discovered the secret of the divided post and all that,' I said, speaking for the rest of us. "'Oh, that,' replied Carnacki, puffing vigorously at his pipe. "'I found, on comparing the photos, that the one taken in the daytime showed a thicker left-hand gatepost than the one taken at night by the flashlight. "'That put me onto the track.' I saw at once that there might be some mechanical dodge at the back of the whole queer business, and nothing at all of an abnormal nature. I examined the post, and the rest was simple enough, you know. By the way, he continued, rising and going to the mantelpiece, you may be interested to have a look at the so-called wayful dagger. Young Jonick was kind enough to present it to me as a little memento of my adventure. He handed it round to us, and whilst we examined it, stood silent before the fire puffing meditatively at his pipe. Jonick and I made the trap so that it won't work,' he remarked after a few minutes. "'I've got the dagger, as you see, and old Bellet's getting about again, "'so that the whole business can be hushed up decently. "'All the same, I fancy the chapel will never lose its reputation as a dangerous place. "'It should be pretty safe now to keep valuables in.' "'There's two things you haven't explained yet,' I said. "'What do you think caused the two clangy sounds when you were in the chapel in the dark? "'And do you believe the soft?" Self- "'Tready sounds were real, or only a fancy with your being so worked up and tense.' "'Don't know for certain about the clangs,' replied Karnaki. "'I've puzzled quite a bit about them. "'I can only think that the spring which worked the post must have given a trifle, and "'slipped, you know, in the catch. "'If it did, under such a tension it would make a bit of a ringing noise. "'And a little sound goes a long way in the middle of the night when you're thinking of ghostesses. "'You can understand that, eh?' Hey? "'Yes,' I agreed. "'And the other sounds?' Well, the same thing. I mean, the extraordinary queerness may help to explain these a bit. They may have been some usual enough sound that would never have been noticed under ordinary conditions, or they may have only been fancy. It is just impossible to say. They were disgustingly real to me. As for the slithery noise, I'm pretty sure that was one of the tripod legs of my camera must have slipped a few inches. If it did so, it may easily have jolted the lens cap off the baseboard, which would account for that queer little tap which I heard directly after. "'How do you account for the dagger being in its place above the altar "'when you first examined it that night?' I asked. "'How could it be there when at the very moment it was set in the trap?' "'Well, that was my mistake,' replied Carnacki. "'The dagger could not possibly have been in its sheath at the time, "'though I thought it was. "'You see, the curious cross-hilted sheath "'gave the appearance of the complete weapon, as you can understand. "'The hilt of the dagger protrudes very little "'above the continued portion of the sheath, "'a most inconvenient arrangement for drawing quickly.' He nodded sagely at the lot of us, then yawned and glanced at the clock. Now to go, he said in a friendly fashion, using the recognized formula, I want to sleep. We rose, shook him by the hand, and went out presently into the night and the quiet of the embankment, and so to our homes. And that is the end of the story. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to join me on Patreon, patreon.com slash theweirdtalespodcast. Every dollar goes back into the show and is used to pay for things like hosting fees, guest readers, and the West Wing of our mansion, as well as all the out-of-print Lego models for which it serves as a museum. Eric Braun, Michaela, and Sarah Sims, thank you so much for your support. We're rapidly drawing toward the end of the year, and that means Christmas Ghost Stories Season 5 will be kicking into gear. This year, it's a full cast reading of A Christmas Carol, and I certainly hope you enjoy it. Please check out the Colin Malatrat Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities. Please go and get vaccinated for anything and everything you are available to get. Punch a Nazi in the face if you see one out and about. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Here's the bloops. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting... Wow, that was... I'm not drunk, I swear. That's ginger ale. Everybody calm down. And you know what? I'm going to kick the anthill here. It's Schweppes. You know why? Because Schweppes is better than Canada Dry. There, I said it. What are you going to do about it? I put them into methylated spirits for 15 minutes, after which I carried them into the photographer's kitchen and dried them in the oven. William Hope Hodgson here, here now is diving into a little bit of Pauliniism, in which, like Christopher Paulini in the Aragon books, says to the audience who is reading, Look how much research I did. Aren't I smart and a good writer? No, Christopher Paulini. No, you're not.